This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite mythology, philosophy, history, pop culture podcast. You name it, we analyze and discuss it. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth episode. You know, long before there was this thing called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where comic book movies were the dominant and most pervasive and most uh, profitable form of storytelling in cinema. Before there were deconstructionist movies such as Logan and Deadpool, who questioned what it meant to be a superhero, who asked the questions, what's with this whole superhero movie phenomenon anyway? There was a movie 10 years ago that came out that adapted a graphic novel that dared to ask the question, What's with the superhero? Are they actually heroes? And deconstructed this whole narrative, the whole center mythology upon which we've rested our very Americanness. What am I talking about, Midnight Myth listeners? I'm talking about Zack Snyder's 2009 adaptation of Alan Moore's graphic novel, The Watchmen. We're heading back to ancient history. Back to 2009, what feels like another world, another time entirely. Because, like you said, Derek, it was before we understood comic book movies the way that we understand them today. And we're also discussing another period in time, which is 1986, 1987, when the source material graphic novel by Ellen Moore and, and Dave Gibbons came out, Watchmen, which ran from 1986 to 1987. Uh, these are a very different period in time than we understand today, but I think our discussion on this podcast will be interesting to figure out how we got here from there, how we got to where we are with superheroes today from this very pivotal moment in the comic book, in the superhero genre. And yeah, I mean, Watchmen is 
a beast of a topic to uh, tackle here. In particular, in one episode, there are entire podcasts dedicated to both the movie and the comics. There are countless podcasts that do such. So I'm going to go out and say two things. One, the comics and the movies are going to be spoiled, so spoiler walls up. And this is by no stretch in the imagination going to be an exhaustive conversation around the dense ideas, competing philosophies, interpretations, and opinions that have existed about this work of art. So let us start. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's talk all things Watchmen. Yet before we do, I know there's a ton of things going on in the Midnight Myth world universe, so to speak. So, uh, Laurel, what's going on with the Midnight Myth these days? It's been a big week. It's been a big month for the Midnight Myth. Uh, We've seen tons of growth, uh, some really exciting things. We found ourselves on uh, the Apple Podcast charts in not only the United States, uh, but Austria, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Sweden, the Netherlands, Germany, and Great Britain. And it was really exciting to see that happen Uh, And we only have you, our listeners, to thank for that. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for rating, for reviewing. If you have been listening and haven't found the time to uh, rate us or leave a review yet, please consider doing so. It'll take five minutes, and it really helps us get out there and reach more audiences. So, uh, yeah, please consider taking the time to do that. Otherwise, if you want to join in the conversation, if you want to uh, keep in touch and you want to see updates from us more regularly, make sure you follow us on social media, especially on Twitter, at The Midnight Myth. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. Uh, You can also head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. There's more content there. There's blogs. And you can find out all of the latest information about what's going on with the Midnight Myth. Also on our website, there is a link to our merch store where you can check out Midnight Myth and Wheel of Calm merch. So tees, totes, phone cases, stickers, whatever you need. We have everything, especially for your Christmas gifts for friends and family. If you're looking to do that, make sure you place those orders now. And also on the website, there's a link to our Patreon where you can support us for $1 a month, $5 a month, $10, $25, whatever you have to spare. Those pledges really do help us continue to make this podcast and make more content for you. So consider supporting us on Patreon. Um, Other than that, uh, we have plenty of things in the hopper with other podcast friends. We're doing some guest spots coming up. And we have some guests who are going to be working with us for future episodes. So we're really excited about those. We're also partnering with some friends from YouTube, the Pop Venture family, for a Funko Pop giveaway in November that's going to help coincide with the new Star Wars movie release. So make sure you stay uh, attuned to our social media and to our episodes for that. Make sure you subscribe to Pop Venture family with a link in the show notes so you can learn how to enter that giveaway and qualify. And uh, counting down to the next episode of The Wheel of Ka, our exploration into Stephen King's The Dark Tower. Say thank you, Sai. Steve and I are really, really excited to talk about Wolves of the Kala. We're doing the second half of the book. And uh, yeah, I think that's enough shit. Let's talk about The Watchmen. <laughs> that's enough shit. Okay, great. I guess we'll start with a, a very, very brief light recap. It's a Good. huge movie. It's an even huger comic series. Um, For the most part, we're going to be talking about the movie that is freshest in our minds, but we have both read the comics, so those will be on the table as well. But primarily, we're interested in discussing the cinematic adaptation in 2009 by the director Zack Snyder. 
In it, we see a group of superheroes known as the Watchmen who have been forced into retirement through something called the Keen Act. You have President Nixon, who has been president for five terms in the year 1985. And because of the almost godlike power of Dr. Manhattan, the first American true superhero, some call a god, the Soviet Union has been stockpiling records amounts of nuclear weapons. And we find the world on the brink of nuclear war. In that, we see characters such as Rorschach, a sociopathic, justice-driven, homeless man who is still fighting crime and wears a mask of black and white that does the Rorschach psychological test where you look at ink blots and you have to summarize what they are. We have Night Owl, who is a somewhat flabby retired superhero who is uh, just living off of his father's money. You have Silk Spectre, who's in love with Dr. Manhattan, living in a military institution, working with Ozymandias or Adrian, trying to stop the energy crisis by creating a, a free source of external free energy for the world, hence ending the competition for resources between the Soviet and the American empires. All of this comes to a head when a character in the beginning, the comedian, who is also a bit of a sociopath, rapist, murderer, also a superhero, gets thrown out of a window in a very dramatic fight in his apartment, making Rorschach think that there's someone out there killing the masks. All of this builds to a point where, I mean, Dr. Manhattan goes to Mars because he wants to you know, leave civilization behind. Because he thinks he's given a bunch of people that he loves cancer. We have uh, Silk Spectre getting a cuckling Dr. Manhattan with Night Owl. We have uh, Rorschach and Night Owl combining again to go out and try to figure out who's killing the masks. We have Adrian Ozymandias fighting an assassin that he actually hired to kill himself. Because lo and behold, Ozymandias is concocting a scheme to fake an attack from Dr. Manhattan at several of the world's capitals, destroying several major cities, uniting the world against Dr. Manhattan. And in the books, he destroys New York by using a gigantic squid monster. Jeez, could there be more plot in this movie? I know, right? It's well, insane. Yeah, and it's the the graphic novel is four hundred pages, and Zack Snyder had to distill it down so that it was, you know, a tight, almost three hours in the movie. So there is so much to follow, and I appreciate you giving us that recap and hitting the high level beats. There are so many characters, so many relationships that need to be tracked, and so much, most importantly, backstory. Uh, because one of the interesting choices of Watchmen, uh, both the graphic novel and the movie, is that this takes place uh, after every after the Golden Age, right? After everything has fallen apart, at the second generation of this hero grouping, uh, and after they have been outlawed, and they're looking back at their golden years, at when they were actually a team. Now we're seeing them sort of slipping into oblivion, which I think is such an interesting choice. Sure. Some other just fun facts about the film. It uh, grossed $108 million domestically on a $120 million budget. Ooh. So if you take out the foreign um, ticket sales, this movie lost money. With the foreign ticket sales, it made money. Definitely a flop. It's sitting at 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. And honestly, I think that's a generous 71%. If you read the reviews, both from the critics and the users, even the positive reviews, the things that Rotten Tomatoes rates as positive, 
are lukewarm positive at best. Right. Or just a little more positive than negative. Yeah. But are still pretty negative. I mean, this movie is one of the most universally panned movies out there, especially that we have talked about. And in particular, in the era of the superhero films, you know, I joked that this was before the MCU. The MCU was just getting started. It was in its phase one. We had had the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, this was right after Christopher Nolan dropped uh, Batman Begins and Dark Knight. And then we had Zack Snyder did 300, the adaptation from Frank Miller's comic. That was a smash success. Um, one just quick question for you to kick off analysis of this film. Why do you think it failed? Uh, wow, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm really glad that we're talking about this movie because I'm going to go in with full transparency. This is not a movie that I love. Uh, I I do think that there is some some really great uh, potential. I think there's some great ambition um, to this movie, but it's not something that I feel a whole lot of excitement about when I like sit down to watch it. However, I do think there is there are so many ideas. There are so many things that, from our perspective here on the Midnight Myth, are so worth investigating. And I also do really like the source material. I really like the Watchmen comic. Uh, as far as why do I think it failed, I think there are a lot of potential reasons that we could ascribe to that. I mentioned that it's ambitious, and ambition is usually synonymous with risk, and Zack Snyder took a risk here. Uh, he attempted to be very faithful to the source material in the comic book, uh, and by doing so, at least on a superficial or visual level, he sacrificed some elements of the comic that people felt very possessive of. Most people have referred to this comic as unadaptable for a very long time, and it's had several failed attempts to adapt this film. Um, I think in choosing to uh, cater to fans and falling short of that, he also made a movie that the general public was like, I don't get it. And... I think I, I still admire the ambition of taking on this project and attempting something that big and that risky. But again, it falls very much short of both sets of populations expectations. Right. Those sets being the diehard comic fans yeah. and then the average, I want to see a superhero movie fans. Right. right. I, I agree with that. I watched this movie having never read the comics and not really knowing about the Watchmen comics and so this movie introduced me to the comics, which I have since seen the movie, yeah. gone and read. And I will admit, easily, the comic books are better than the film. Absolutely. And because, in large part because Alan Moore, as controversial as a lot of his decisions can be, he wrote one of, if not the most successful, deconstructions of the mythology of the superhero. And if we take the mythology of the superhero... As a fundamental aspect of mid-20th century Americana, it's the idea that the superhero sets America as a shining beacon, as an example to lead the world, as being morally incorruptible, as being able to be brave and strong in the face of ad adversity, of being an individual or a small group of individuals who can take on great odds and always overcome them. We take that myth as fundamental to who we are, Alan Moore and I do think Zack Snyder 
are taking that myth and turning it on its head and asking, is this myth even doing any good to begin with? Has it been fundamentally a lie that we've been telling ourselves about ourselves? And I think that the comic really captures that. I think the movie tries to. Yeah, and I think absolutely. The, and I think the movie has successes and failures. I also think, and this is just my purely Derek opinion, this is by no means or stretch of the imagination, the authority on it. But in my opinion, I think people are too hard on the movie. I don't think it's as bad as the critics make it out to be. I think in 2009, it was groundbreaking. And I think it was able to, to successfully turn the narrative on the head when the world wasn't ready for that narrative to be flipped. The world wanted to drink in the traditional superhero. And yeah, the superhero could have some flaws. Tony Stark can be an alcoholic and he can also be uh, you know, a sex addict misogynist. But at the end of the day, he's still Iron Man. Yeah, you know, Peter Parker can be broke and he cannot be very confident. At the end of the day, he looks at the Green Goblin and he punches him in the face. Complexity was okay, but people were really thirsty for more standard superhero narratives in 2009. Yeah, Batman can have this gritty, realistic, philosophical battle with the Joker, but the Batman's going to win that battle and he's going to defeat the Joker and he's going to save the soul of Gotham City. This is one where everyone's soul walks away tainted at a time when I think most people wanted to feel good about their heroes. I think if this is made in 2019, I think it's going to have a warmer reception. And I'll give just a slight piece of pop culture evidence. The success of the Amazon show, The Boys. Yeah. People are like, okay, we've had a decade of the MCU and we love it. No one is you know, knocking it and saying it should go away. But people are thirsty to see more complicated, more real, more flawed superheroes that have some more moral ambiguity. People want that now. I don't think they wanted it in 2009. And I think that's part of the reason so many people hate a movie that I think has more successes than failures. I really respect that opinion. I appreciate that. Um, and it, it's it's important to recognize that like now we come to expect our superheroes to be grittier. We expect Logans. We expect the boys. Uh, we expect even the forays into sort of more realistic, more morally complex landscapes that Marvel has offered and obviously DC has offered under Zack Snyder. We expect that. That is a hallmark of the, the world that we live in now and the media landscape that we have. But in 2009, that was not the norm. And more importantly, in the 1980s, that was not the norm. Now, Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons was not necessarily the first comic to ever flip the superhero narrative on its head or to ever offer a uh, subversive attitude toward the superhero, but it is the gold standard for the deconstruction of that shining beacon of patriotism, of total goodness and moral correctness. It is the gold standard of that. And so we have to remember that this is what kicked off what we have now. This is what we owe so much to. So maybe it's not as groundbreaking today as it was when it first uh, hit the scene, but we have to pay that respect to it. Yeah. And guys, if you're listening and you hear some sniffles, it's because I'm getting over a cold and it's easier for me to just sniffle than it <laughs> is to pause every time I need to sniff. So oh, if you hear some, that's just me getting over a cold. I may not sound um, 
as, well, I think I sound okay. Anyway. Yeah, you sound fine. Let us move on. Let's get into some of the meat and potatoes of yeah. this. Um, what I love the most about it is I feel that there are certain characters that can represent certain dispositions, whether those dispositions are ideological, whether those are emotional states. And I think this movie and the comic do a good job putting those dispositions in conflict. And I, I would like to maybe discuss some of the characters, give an idea of who those characters are, their general disposition, their general outlook in the world, and how those outflicks, outlooks ultimately come into conflict. I'd like to start with Rorschach, if that's I cool with you. I think that's a wonderful place to start. He's kind of the emotional center of the movie. He he um, is often the narrative spine. We hear uh, excerpts from his journal. We hear a lot of voiceover from him, and he kind of directs us through as he's the only one who's really interested in investigating who killed the comedian. So he helps to uh, string together the threads of the past, present, and future of the Watchmen. So I think that's a wonderful place to start. He wears a mask that emulates the Rorschach test, which was administered by psychoanalysists and psychiatrists, who will show these ink blots, and you're supposed to say what you see, and the idea is this will loosen your subconscious mind and give a psychoanalysis the ability to kind of penetrate into your subconscious and see what projections are coming from your subconscious onto these tests. I think the idea that he's called Rorschach, the idea that he has a living Rorschach mask on his face at all times and that the character calls it his face, I think that's the first place I'd like to start with understanding this character. So one, there's a connection to psychoanalysis. Even though we get a sense from Rorschach that he doesn't respect uh, academic liberalism, he tells the psychiatrist that he talks to that he dislikes him because he's fat with his liberal sensibilities. I still think there's a nod to the idea that there is something bubbling underneath the surface psychologically. I also enjoy the fact that I think it's interesting how Rorschach decides to administer justice and that he is brutal. He's like if you took the the super ego and you manifest it into a hero and you remove from it the constraints of societal law. Let me flesh that out a little bit. Yeah. There's the id, ego, and super ego, which are the three general layers, according to Sigmund Freud, that you have in your mind. The id is de- the first one that's developed. It develops when you're a baby. It's all impulses. It's desires. And as you grow up, you develop an ego. An ego is the rational part of your mind. When you think of yourself and how you act, you are thinking of your ego. That's the part of you that decides, should I get a hamburger today or a salad today for lunch? Your ego is what makes those decisions for you. And then once you get a little older, you develop a thing called a super ego. And the super ego is linked to the father in psychoanalysis. That there is a father who is your dad who teaches you right from wrong and arbiters that. But you get to a point when you realize your father really isn't all powerful. And so then you would usually supplement that with other father figures, whether that be God. God, yeah. Or whether that be a sense of morality. The super ego is the part of you that administers right and wrong. It's that gut feeling when you're like, I could do this, but ugh, I feel like it's wrong. And you don't know why you feel like it's wrong. It's because your super ego is telling you that. I see Rorschach as the unleashed, unchecked super ego. One, he's a character without a father, so he didn't have that father figure to teach him 
right and wrong in the way that Freud would say a healthy development happens. So he develops an oversense of right and wrong. Things are always black and white, just like his mask. Something is either right and it is wrong and there's no room in between. And those things that fall on the wrong, they must be punished 100% and you have to punish it fiercely without mercy or without pity. And then the things that are right and those things are good and right and you must protect them. This is really wrapped up in, in sexuality because his mother was a prostitute and he was bullied for the prostitution. This is really wrapped up in criminality. And he looks at the world in his introduction. He says, the politicians and whores will whisper, save us, or will shout, save us. And I'll whisper, no. In the very first introduction of him, he's telling us, I'm not a fucking hero. I am not here to save this. All of the rotten people deserve what they get, and I'm out here to administer this sort of secular but uh, fierce morality of right and wrong. He does occasionally refer to his brand of justice as retribution, which is something we talked about just a couple of weeks ago on our podcast about Tim Burton's Batman, which I think is interesting because I perceive Rorschach, at least in this depiction of him, as very much like if the Joker succeeded in pushing Batman over the edge and driving him insane, he would become Rorschach, right? So he would still think that he was the ultimate person to arbitrate right and wrong, and he would still administer retribution, but it would probably be really twisted and really violent. You know, we see um, some of the more important scenes in forming who Rorschach is and how he doles out justice. Uh, there's when he discovers what happened to the little girl, uh, and in the movie, he butchers a guy in a horrifically violent display. And as viewers, we're like, we, we kind of want to butcher that guy, too. He's done one of the most vile and disgusting, horrible crimes you can possibly think of. But on the other end, we see Rorschach articulate some really twisted and disturbed feelings about women that are definitely left over from his feelings about his mother. Some really twisted ideas about people just living their lives in a way that he doesn't approve of. And so uh, we don't feel confident handing uh, the, the gavel of right and wrong to this particular arbiter. Oh, and that's the complexity that this movie exists in. There's no one character that we feel is a like true quote unquote superhero, right? They're all very complicated and all very flawed and failed in so many ways. You look at a character like Rorschach and what he does and you think, yeah, no wonder they made him illegal. You don't want him walking around at night deciding who lives and who dies. Right. Absolutely. Cause to him, the sin of eating too many hamburgers is almost as bad as the sin of, you know, mugging someone. You know, because he has such a warped and twisted view of the world because he is overactive superego. And because it is the sense of the superego that gives us the ability to say we should have retributive justice. It's the overactive sense of superego that says, I may be in jail, but you're locked in here with me. I'm the most dangerous one because I have no pity and no mercy because everything that falls outside the bounds of the black and white vision of right and wrong, I must destroy. And deep and down, he is definitely compensating for his life, right? Like yeah. he's compensating for the fact that he came from a very troubled childhood, 
that he came from a mother who was a sex worker. And didn't want him. That he was abused as a child from his mother, that he was bullied by his peers. And all of those things manifest in a character who has way too overactive of a super ego and no ego in id to kind of put these things in harmony or in balance. That's kind of how I look at Rorschach. Yeah. He's definitely a duty-based or a rules-based moralist. He believes that there are certain right and wrong rules and that if you cross those, you have to pay and that you can never cross them. For him, it's committing crimes. And for him, it's committing crimes. It's committing acts of sex. It's committing acts of like gluttony or um, acts of just like pure excess and pleasure. People should just live stoic lives where they eat cold beans because that sustains you, but nothing for enjoyment. Don't even warm the fucking beans. You just eat them cold because you need some food to make your body move better. Yeah, he's very much rules-based to a fault. Uh, You know, there's the scene where he visits Moloch and he is trying to get some information about uh, out of this guy who used to be a supervillain. And he even tries to nail him on just having an illegal prescription drug in his drawer. Uh, and he just barely lets the guy off the hook when he tells him that he has cancer. But he's like, I will look for every little transgression and I will punish that transgression, even if it's something that is just a part of your lifestyle or it's something that you do to make yourself feel better, I will punish it because it is breaking the rules. Right. Even though he himself acting as a superhero is breaking the rules, his overactive superego shields him from having to uh, apply that lens to himself. Hold himself accountable. Yeah. Because if you're a true like rules-based moralist, torturing someone is wrong. Because you don't want to live in a moral universe where everyone gets tortured. Yeah. So you yourself can't torture people. Because he is sociopathic, psychopathic, because he's so mentally ill, he doesn't apply that same standard to his actions. It's only to others that he applies it, right? It is Malik who has a illegal prescription, even though that's to ease his pain as he's dying from cancer, that he can't stomach. The idea that he is able to kill any criminal at will. Well, if you're any kind of duty-based moralist, you know that killing people, that's the easiest one to check off the list, as you don't do. You don't kill people. But Rorschach has passed that gulf where he is sees himself beyond following the rules of others. It is precisely because I'd say it's his overactive superego as a character, which puts him in direct conflict to characters like Ozymandias. Ozymandias, who also feels like he can be the one to decide who is right and who is wrong or who lives and who dies. So yes. it's important that they are uh, philosophically disaligned, but in terms of their methods, they both feel as though they can be the ones who put themselves in control. They both sort of step outside of the system and put themselves into a place of superiority. I totally agree with that, but they do it for different reasons. Yeah. Because in my metaphor of Rorschach as the superego, Ozymandias is the ego. He's all rationality. He is all pure self and pure thought. What do I mean by that? The ego is your conscious part. Ozymandias Adrian runs a company, and he doesn't just run that company well. He makes it the most profitable company in the world. 
So he is the richest man in the world. He calls himself and is called by others the smartest man in the world. So he gets all of these sort of gratifying, very human, very egotistical um, statements about himself. He views himself akin to Alexander the Great and Ramses II or Ramses the Great. In other words, it is not because there is a set way where there is a black and white right versus wrong that Ozymandias is able to you know, adjudicate what is right and what is wrong. It is rather he is so smart, he is so special, he is so grand that he should be able to decide what the best way to conquer mankind's um, evils and sins are. And in so, he judges that, hey, if I kill X amount of millions and that saves X amount of billions and I stop the threat from nuclear war, well, obviously, that's what a good god king does. And he makes the decision as a god king, not as a there is a fundamental right and wrong outside of me and we have to stick to it. To Adrian, it's just about him and the way he views it, and he is able to make the decision based upon the consequence of the action rather than a strict sense of moral rights or wrongs. Absolutely. I think there's some interesting things to uh, to explore here with Adrian Ozymandias because uh, the naming of the character is so significant in multiple ways. You mentioned Ramses II, who clearly is uh, someone that Adrian holds up as an idol Uh, him and Alexander the Great, people he feels great kinship with in terms of antiquity as conquerors and also as people who were worshipped as well as um, seen as kings. But Ozymandias is the Greek name for Ramses II. And I think it's significant that they choose uh, the Greek version of the name over the Egyptian version of the name. And that's not just to align him with Greek antiquity, that's to align him with a particular sonnet by the English romantic poet Percy Shelley. Uh, this, uh, this poem is called Ozymandias, and it narrates a traveler, a tourist meeting a traveler from a sort of distant land who tells a story of a ruined statue that he came across. Uh, he says there's a pair of legs standing in the desert, uh, a shattered visage lies. There's a lot of language that you're probably uh, familiar with that might ring a bell in your head if you read this poem. Uh, but the inscription on this ruined statue in this exotic eastern land says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. The poem goes on to uh, continue describing how the statue is in ruins, how nothing of the empire remains, how the empire is in total decay and has disappeared, and how all that remains of this great man and his great works is this ruined piece of art. Uh, And Adrian himself has erected a statue in his lair of Ramses II that is crumbling, it is decaying, and he has inscribed it with the English words, look on my works ye mighty and despair. So he has very specifically aligned himself with Shelley's Ozymandias, with the romantic poet and this 19th century poem. What's important about this is that Uh, You know, a quick reading of this poem will remind you that even the greatest people who ever lived, even the most uh, seemingly impactful in their time, will die, uh, that all of us do face the same end in mortality, 
and that even the great stone uh, you know, monuments that we erect of ourselves are doomed to fall. But I think just stopping there is a superficial reading of the poem because at the end of the day, there's only one figure in this poem full of many figures, many narrators that has a name, and that's Ozymandias, King of Kings. So Adrian, by uh, giving himself this name, is indicating this level of self-awareness that everything that we have on this earth is temporary, that it, it's all doomed to fail eventually. The doomsday clock will go from five minutes down to zero and we will finally be extinct someday. But maybe his name will once again be etched in the stars, will go on forever even after all of this is over. Yeah, great point. So since we're talking ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and we're talking Ozymandias, yeah. <laughs> would you permit me a little bit of a historical tangent? And trust me, it will of course it'll but button up nicely. We understand the history of the pharaohs from an Alexandrian who is the that was the capital of Egypt during its Hellenistic period. Alexander the Great had conquered Egypt and kicked out the Persians. And the Egyptians loved this because they did not like being part of the Persian Empire. And they herald uh, Alexander as their new king. And if you're an ancient Egyptian king, you are the living manifestation of the Egyptian god Horus. And when you die, you become the Egyptian god Osiris. And hence the cycles of the kings continues. Now, the idea of a pharaoh is actually a mistranslation. Pharaoh means house of the king. So calling the kings of ancient Egypt pharaohs is a lot like calling the president the White House. Let me be more specific. Oh, we may wow. see a piece of literature today that says the White House says blank. And we know that's coming from the executive um, uh, white. We know that's coming from the executive branch. We don't the White House isn't literally saying that, but we know it's endorsed by the president. The pharaoh is the house of the king. And we have come to call them pharaohs because of this Greek historian named Mantheo called them pharaohs. And he linked the house with the king itself. Bit of a mistranslation. Interesting, fun tidbit. That's tidbit. amazing, yeah. So Mantheo divided Egypt history into three different dynastic periods. The Old, Middle, and New Kingdom. Without getting too lost in the weeds, Ramses II is one of the greatest of the New Kingdom Egyptian kings. Uh, to, to understand the context, the pyramids of Giza, the Sphinx, built in the Old Kingdom. The Valley of the Kings, built in the New Kingdom. So thousands of years later, there was this Ramses II who was able to energize and revitalize Egypt, unify Egypt into one people, because technically ancient Egypt is two kingdoms, Upper and Lower Egypt. Right. And he brought about an artistic renaissance, a Egyptian renaissance, where Egyptianness was on the rise. This was coinciding with the time where the rest of the ancient Mediterranean societies were in decay. No one really knows why they were in decay. The best theory out there was it had to do with climate change, and people weren't able to grow crops, and the Egyptians were. But out of this rose a very powerful Egyptian and an Egyptian um, sort of culture and the entire ancient world revolved around Egypt. Ramses II also had a stepbrother by the name of Moses, and Moses was famously who led the ancient Hebrew out of Egypt. I've heard of him, yes. Yes, I think we've all heard yes. of, of that. Linking himself 
this is Adrian. To Ramses is a particular Egyptian king. One, the Egyptian king of the new kingdom, of the sort of last great Egyptian empire. Two, he specifically calls himself akin to Alexander the Great, who was an Egyptian pharaoh, who went and conquered Egypt and was viewed as a liberator of Egypt and helped bring about the last dynasty of ancient Egypt, which were the Ptolemies. And it was also significant that this is at the end of what we know as Egyptian history, or I should say ancient Egyptian history proper. So it's at the transition point between two major um, um, you know, times where there is a great Egyptian empire, which crumbled and gave way to the great Roman empire that followed it. And hence Egyptian history gets absorbed into ancient Roman history. Why does all this matter? This is where Adrian sees himself. He sees himself as one of these great figures of history who's transitioning things out of the old into the new. And like every mover and shaker of history, they had to make sacrifices, they had to make tough calls, and because they knew what's best, because their ego was so powerful, it could divert rivers and topple empires, they are able to make the decisions that others can't. In other words, Adrian is so egotistical and narcissistic, he views himself as a literal God King on earth. And because he's a God King on earth, he can make the decision to wipe out half of the world's greatest cities in the name of peace. You know, we framed this as how Adrian is the philosophical uh, other end of the pole to Rorschach, how they are sort of mirrors of one another in terms of how they view the world. But Rorschach has a quote in the movie that I wrote down uh, where he says, quote, ancient pharaohs looked forward to the end of the world, end quote. And I sort of see that in Adrian too, where he sees himself not just as a god king, but a god king of the end times, as he almost looks at this uh, this sense of uh, the world is about to end, the end is nigh. He looks at that as an opportunity. He looks at that as this is my chance to bring about the new world order, or at least to leave my mark on this one. Absolutely. And, you know, another thing that's interesting is Adrian expresses in this movie like a level of grief and a level of doubt. But I I find it interesting that it's funneled through television screens. Yeah. He's not really experiencing the pain. He's watching it on TV. It's a lot like when, when we watch TV today, when we watch the news and look at horrible things that might be happening, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away. And maybe we feel an emotional reaction to it, but most of the time we say, oh, that's a shame. Uh, it feels like that. It's very much filtered through this sort of detachment and this uh, disengagement with the reality of it. Yep, and in, in like a true God King, he may not like his decision. As Dr. Manhattan says, I don't condone or condemn. I just understand. Yeah. And Adrian just, I understand I made this choice. It's the right choice, obviously, because... I am Ramses II, Alexander the Great Manifest. I make the tough decisions. I am fully ego in comparison to the super ego of Warshak. There's another like 
pin on this to keep my Freudian metaphor going, yeah. if you don't mind. Please. Because I do think the main moral conflict of the movie is between Adrian and Warshak. Absolutely. But I wanna I wanna, you know, at least mention the comedian. He's sort of the narrative glue that connects all the characters. Why do they get back together? Because the comedian was killed. Yeah. Because the comedian's killed, there's a mystery to untangle. Because there's a mystery to untangle, the watchmen kind of form another sort of really fucked up group again. The comedian is all id. He's all impulse. He's the one that looks at the complexity of the world and says, fuck it, let me shoot, fucking fight. And that's all he cares about doing. There are, there's him, his desires, and his impulses, and there are those in the way between his desires and his impulses. It simply seems to be just a historical accident that he fights crime. He could very easily be the one perpetuating crime. Absolutely. And in often cases is committing crimes under the cloak of the superhero um, sort of veneer, if you will. This idea that, yeah, he's a superhero. He's not a bad guy. You know, what if Captain America went to Vietnam and shot a pregnant woman? That's the comedian. And wouldn't we all look at that with a sense of irony and just be like, it's all a joke. Mother, forgive us. Yeah. Uh, you know, he, anytime he's confronted with responsibility, he once again reverts to that. Okay. Well, this doesn't give me pleasure right now. So I'm going to annihilate it or I'm going to destroy it. We eventually see the emotional toll that this takes on the man. And this, you know, at least gives us in, in some form, uh, a hint that he has more to him than just constantly going after the pleasure principle. But most of our impressions of the comedian uh, are of him trying to force himself on women like Sally Jupiter or of him gunning down uh, his pregnant paramour in Vietnam, like you just mentioned, or him heading out on the streets with Night Owl and taking pleasure in putting down a riot with uh, absolute obscene violence. This is a character who is definitely deeply disturbed um, and who meets a, a horrible end, not necessarily one that he deserved, but one that feels uh, you know, fitting for a life of violence and near crime. But it's also ironic that he's one of the ones who's still employed by the government uh, deep into the end of The Watchmen. He is still under the control of, uh, of the Nixon administration at some point because they feel like they can control him, which I find deeply ironic. Yeah, definitely. And I think he rounds out the trilogy of these three characters yeah. and how they are all different po like poles of the triangle or the pyramid, if you will. Ha ha ha, see what I did there? Yeah, oh yeah, because uh, ancient Egypt. Yeah, because of ancient Egypt. Yeah, bad joke. Anyway, and I, I think it's worth mentioning that Amidst all of this chaos and all of the violence and all of the just absolute absurdity of it all, there's a part of all of us that says, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to get laid. And you know what? If someone says no, eh, I've got the power to make them say yes. So fuck you, everybody. Oh, God, it's so gross. But it is a part of the human psychology and condition. There have always been comedians. Right. In the respect of the character, the comedian. There's always been warriors willing to go out there and do whatever to whoever for whatever lord or king or god king they serve. And it makes perfect sense that he is still employed by the government because we see a government 
that is willing to do whatever it takes to win. And you're going to need comedians out there to exercise that as well as we also, we haven't gotten to yet, Dr. Manhattan. Right. Well, and the other great irony of this too is that when putting together this uh, conception of ego, superego, and id within these three characters, uh, the idea in psychoanalysis is that you bring those things in harmony and you have something resembling a healthy human being, a healthy self, right? But what we know from flashbacks, what we know from what happens when these characters get together is that there is no healthy harmony or balance between these characters. There's no world where you get these people together and they actually improve each other. They mostly amplify each other's worst impulses and make each other worse. So it's an interesting uh, way to read these characters, and I think it's valid, and I think you're reading it correctly. But once again, Alan Moore in this comic is subverting these expectations that we have uh, there's no world where you bring these characters together and they are better. Absolutely. In a standard superhero narrative, you might have a Gambit, Wolverine, and a Cyclops. Right, yeah. And they may not like each other, but put them together on a battlefield against other supervillains, and suddenly they act in perfect harmony. Not in Alan Moore's universe. In Alan Moore's universe, we are living under the thumb of dictator Nixon, who has seized control, who is using Dr. Manhattan and the comedian so effectively to topple governments and fight wars that the Soviets have more nuclear weapons than they've ever had in our actual history, and it's put us on the brink of nuclear war. Yeah, there's no actual harmony. There's no actual justice that they can actually go out and, and actualize as a group. In fact, the group itself is so toxic it has to become illegal. Yeah, um, the comedian has uh, a few iconic lines, but one really special one is when he and Night Owl are on the street uh, trying to put down the riot around the police strike, and Night Owl says, what happened to the American dream? And the comedian says, it came true, you're looking at it. Um, that's another moment of feeling like, okay, yeah, this was supposed to be harmony. This was supposed to be what we all wanted. Once we won the Vietnam War, we were supposed to have defeated communism. We were supposed to have saved the world. And yet, it's just left us feeling empty. It's just given us this feeling of overstuffed power. It's just given us a world with more problems and more complex problems than we were ready for. We thought we fixed it. We thought we had the American dream come true, and yet we have more problems than when we started. I'm glad you brought up that scene because I specifically noted that one too. Yeah. When Night Owl says, what happened to us, what happened to the American dream, the comedian says, it came true. What do you, do you think the comedian means it came true, like this violence and these riots and these upheaval, this is the American dream? Does he say, it came true, look at me, I am the American dream, me. Look at literally the comedian. That character is the manifestation of the American dream, that Americans are just otherwise selfish and savage creatures that just go after their own impulses, and that's all that they can be. Um, you know, like, do you think that's what they mean in that scene? Like, how do you read that? Uh, wow. I mean, there's a lot. I think there's a lot of ways to read it. Um, for me, it comes, uh, it, it comes very close to... Uh, 
the same sentiment as when Night Owl is later addressing Adrian and saying, uh, you know, you didn't save these people. You didn't, uh, you know, rely on human nature. You've tainted human nature. I don't remember exactly how he says it. Um, I think he says you've deformed the truth. You you deformed deformed our peace. Yeah. Uh, You know, we're looking at an alternate history where things turned out differently, where, where one significant event, I think the most significant change to the uh, alternate history in Watchmen is that the U S won the Vietnam War, one of the more significant defeats in the American past that we, you know, today look at as uh, something that bred all of this destruction, all of this, you know, loss, all of this um, post-traumatic stress and a whole deep psychic wound on our country. And I think what um, the comedian is saying here and what Night Owl is saying later is that by giving this, uh, by manufacturing this other outcome, by manufacturing another outcome, you have still led to consequence. So what happened to the American dream? What always happens to the American dream? The American dream is a myth, and what we are looking at is as close as we are ever going to get. Does that make sense? (laughs) Yes, and it's a good segue to the next thing I want to talk about, um, however, we have to make sure we leave room to talk about Dr. Manhattan in yes, full because yeah. we haven't gotten to him yet, but you talk to the American dream as a myth. And I'd like to, to discuss a, a, an idea of political and moral philosophy that goes back to ancient Greece. And it goes back to my man, Socrates and uh, my man, Plato in the Republic. And that's the idea that is commonly called to now as the noble lie. And in this, the Plato's Republic, it has Socrates discussing with peers, students, colleagues, and enemies alike what it means to be just. What is justice? And in this discussion, they come upon the idea of building a just republic. It is a Greek city-state that maximizes justice at all times. And in it, Socrates realizes that in some instances, it's okay to lie meaning that in some instances, telling the truth is not the right thing to do, but in very rare instances. These are instances where the very soul or subject matter is in contention. And let me uh, go and I'll just briefly quote from it. Yet God, in fashioning those of you who are fitted to hold rule, mingled gold in their generation, for which reason they are the most precious. But in the helpers, silver, and an iron and brass in the farmers and other craftsmen. And as you were all akin, though for the most part you will breed after your kinds, it may sometimes happen that a golden father would beget a silver son, and that a golden offspring would come from a silver sire, and that the rest would, in like manner, be born of one another. So that the first and chief injunction that God lays upon the rulers is that nothing else are they to be such careful guardians and so intently observant as of the intermixture of these metals in the souls of their offspring, and if sons are born to them with an infusion of brass or iron, they shall be no means give way to pity in their treatment of them, but shall assign to each status due to his nature and thus and thrust them out among the artisans or the farmers. End quote. Weird thing. The idea here is that Socrates is just like, hey, we're going to need workers, we're going to need craftsmen, we're going to need farmers, we're going to need rulers, we're going to need judges, we're going to need all of these things. How are we going to determine who does what? Let us tell a foundational story. 
that in each person, the gods or God gives a certain precious metal, which is akin to a moral or like societal worth. Some people are gold, gold being the most precious metal, getting the most exalted positions, some being silver right underneath that, brass and iron. And as you go down in the metal quality and the fineness of the metal, thus you go down the social hierarchy. Sometimes these metals will intermingle. And if they do, there might be someone of a mixed status, but always the people at the top, the people who are gold will be able to decide who gets to what rung. So that way, if two brass get together and have a gold child, they'll be able to identify the gold child and place them in the appropriate spot. And should two gold people have a silver child, thus and thus, you're able to put people in the right layer of social stratosphere. Now, that sounds really weird and really harsh. Socrates knew that's not true. He knew that that was fundamentally not true, but we needed he needed in his republic a reason for people to have the jobs, and this was as good as any reason. So there's some nobility to the lie. It's not a lie to corrupt the spirit or the soul. It's not a lie that's designed to be selfish. It's a lie designed to make sure that society functions and functions at a decent level. Hence, it is the noble lie. Now, a lot of people I have read and looking at opinions of this movie have discussed Adrian's decision to wipe out all of the cities as a quote-unquote noble lie. And I think that's fucking horseshit. (laughs) Hot take coming out of the gate 10 years later. (laughs) It is absolutely not a noble lie. Adrian committed mass genocide. He did so for a noble purpose, but the noble lie to me is more akin to the idea that we discuss George Washington as being so truthful when he cut down his father's cherry tree and his father said, George, did you cut down this cherry tree? He said, I cannot tell a lie. I cut down this cherry tree. That's a noble lie. Definitely never happened. But the idea being presidents must be so honest that people have to trust them. And hence people have to trust them. will tell a myth about George Washington that propagates presidents as the ultimate truthful people. This was something that existed in American society up until Richard Nixon. And when Richard Nixon was caught lying, cheating, and stealing in the Watergate, it fundamentally realigned the American's public perception of presidents, where now presidents were liars. Now we assumed that they are liars. Now our parents taught The next generation, watch out for presidents, they're all liars. And that foundational myth shifted. It's no mistake that Nixon is the president in this. It's no mistake that he's been the president for five terms, longer than any other president has ever been president before. And that term limits have been abolished to make room for his new dictatorship. I mean, we discussed, is he a dictator in this? We're like, five terms as president, Nixon who we all know is a crook, yeah, he's a dictator. There's no way he became that legitimately. Oh, yeah. So to tie this all back to the conversation between Night Owl and the comedian when he says, what happened to us? What happened to the American dream? The comedian is looking at it and saying, that foundational myth was bullshit, dude. 
it's a punchline. He's looking at Night Owl being like, you didn't realize that the American dream was a joke the entire time? This is what the American dream has always looked like. We've just had the wool pulled over our eyes. Absolutely. And what 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 are we fighting for anyway? I'm fighting for myself, man. I'm fighting just to go out there and because I like shooting people and I'm going to shoot people legally right now while I still can. Yeah. This is the American dream. Right. Totally. Let us uh, talk a little Dr. Manhattan. Let's talk about the big blue elephant in the room. Because he is also, I think, at a philosophical tentpole, not necessarily a psychological tentpole because Dr. Manhattan really, you know, I mean, the movie does kind of have this idea that he does feel loss and pain and because he feels loss and pain, he can be manipulated. But by and large, he's a, he is pretty out there. He's not a self. Uh, I mean, it, as we're comparing him to the other characters, he is he's detached, he's indifferent, he is removed, and he is very much on his way, uh, you know, out of contact with human beings uh, whatsoever. To me, Dr. Manhattan represents a few layers. One, he is the ultimate weapon when it comes to the idea that um, mutually assured destruction, it's the principle of nuclear combat that says, hey, if we're both nuclear armed nations and we go to war, we'll destroy each other so yeah. we won't go to war. You nuke us, we'll, we'll nuke you. Yeah. It kind of upends that because he can do so many things that there's no counter weapon on the other side. So it kind of pokes a hole into this idea that we can have this mutually assured destruction principle. And uh, in this narrative, that does not work. The mutual assured destruction narrative doesn't hold. And then... The other aspect to him, I think, more uh, philosophically, is that he represents determinism. Because he sees the universe as a collection of particles interacting, that these particles are governed by fundamental forces set about at the Big Bang, and he can see both his past, present, and future simultaneously, we're all just a mixture of particles. At one point that he says that a a live human being and a dead human being are the same number of molecules. Structurally, there's really no difference. And that's how detached he is from the idea that there's any sort of specialness to life. And us as emotional creatures, we view that as an attack. We view that as cruel. Uh, and for him, that just that's just the truth. That's just the natural truth of it. Absolutely. And I think he stands in contrast to characters like Rorschach and like Adrian who think they have the ability to choose. They believe fundamentally that they are agents, they are free will, they are free willed agents rather who can make a mark on the universe by virtue of their choices. To Dr. Manhattan, there's no choice in this. We are what we are based upon how these molecules interact in time if you can control all the variables, you can control all the outcomes. And Dr. Manhattan can control a lot of the variables. He can change molecules at their base level. He can see into his future and his past. And because of that, he represents the idea that there is no free will, that life is not at all important and that it doesn't matter, that the universe is a clock without a clocksmith, and that he looks at the Martian landscape which does not have any life on it, presumably, that we know of. And he says, how would any of this be better if there was an oil pipeline or a shopping mall? 
And he makes this argument that like people aren't worth saving. They're just particles. Why should I even try to save them? Right. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that clock without a clockmaker uh, sort of metaphor there because he's the only character that is constantly referred to as a god or godlike. He sometimes questions whether he is a god and other characters uh, tell him that he is a god. He's also, in the graphic novel and to a certain extent in the movie, the only one who is truly superpowered. The characters in the movie seem to have super strength and speed and can fight really well, but in the comic book, they are very much just regular people who took initiative and put on a mask and decided to fight crime. And Dr. Manhattan is Superman. He is the only superpowered individual. Um, but at the same time, the other characters that we've talked about on this episode, Ozymandias, Rorschach, and the comedian, have all put themselves at some point or another in the position of wanting to be exalted or of wanting to, or identifying as gods or acting as gods in a way that they are the ones who decide what is right and wrong, who gets punished, who gets killed, who lives, who dies. Uh, they have all uh, volunteered to put themselves in the position of God or king. And Dr. Manhattan is not at all interested in being exalted. He's not at all interested in being worshipped, but he's the one with godlike powers. The clockmaker thing comes in here because... Uh, John Osterman, who is the, the man who was Dr. Manhattan before his accident, uh, his father was a watchmaker, and he spent his youth learning how watches worked and how to make the gears tick together. And then his father abandoned watchmaking and clockmaking when Einstein discovered relativity. So as soon as he realized that time was a more complicated concept uh, than just a straight line, he decided he wasn't interested in making watches anymore and threw that out the window. But there is also the very uh, important deist metaphor for God as an all-knowing watchmaker, as uh, a creator individual who set the universe in motion and then took off and played skee-ball. And maybe watches, maybe like looks down to see what's going on, but is not interested in intervening in human life or in any of the actions of the universe, is totally indifferent, is totally disengaged, and uh, is not, it doesn't have any stake in what is happening on the human level. And that's what Dr. Manhattan is. He's a watchmaker. Wow, great point. And two things to add. One, at the very end of the movie, we see Silk Spectre and Night Owl talking, not in costume, and Silk Spectre is just like, Hey, will this piece hold? And what does Night Owl say? As long as people think John is watching, which is in other words to say, will this civilization hold? As long as people think God is watching. And two, what does John do? What does Dr. Manhattan do? What does he do? He says, I'm going to go to another galaxy and I'm going to create life. Yeah, because I can. literally deciding to become a god. Yeah. I'm going to go someplace and create life and watch and see what happens when I create this life. And, and people of Earth have decided that, okay, yeah, this is our God. He can punish us if he wants to, or he can leave us alone. So we are going to continue to live our lives as though he is watching us and he will punish us if we do it wrong. And if we live in fear and awe of him, we can live together in peace. Yeah. He literally becomes a God Truly, in the movie yeah. 
Watchmen in very many literal senses of the word. Yeah. So I think that is a interesting thing that I don't think I'd love to flesh out more, but we're pressing up on time. Um, so I'll, I'll, I, I will ask a question that before we get to final thoughts. That's great. I think we should do a case study on Dr. Manhattan in oh, future. Yeah, if sure. you guys like this episode, let us know. We can do that because I feel like we haven't talked about him enough. That being said, is peace, global peace, is it worth a complete and total genocidal lie? Oh, God. Um, In other words, the ultimate moral conflict that this movie asks, is the peace that Adrian built genocidal, mad that it is, though an actual peace and a sustaining peace, is world peace worth the lie and the violence and the horror? So um, I'm not going to give you a straight yes or no, um, but I think the strength of the comic and uh, the story that that formed the basis of this movie uh, is that it allows us to even ask that question, is that it, uh, it doesn't come down on the side of Rorschach or Ozymandias. It doesn't at all say that one was clearly the hero or one was clearly the villain or one was right or one was wrong. Um, I sort of feel like Dr. Manhattan in this moment where I feel uh, like I don't condone or condemn. I just understand. And I found in 2019 watching this movie for the first time, I think maybe since it came out in theaters, I uh, found Adrian's arguments more convincing than ever. Um, I do not at all condone, uh, you know, the taking of innocent lives, but his holistic argument I find uh, very compelling and something that uh, it, it's why his it's why Alan Moore's comic has endured so well is because it is such a gray area and such a difficult, um, you know, conversation to have. I think even more compelling than Thanos. Well, I will answer the question, and it'll be a slightly long-winded, but... The the mid-80s, early 90s was a time in which America had achieved so much. It had toppled communism. It had had this humongous economic empire. It was recovering from the recession of the George H.W. Bush years and really surging as a global leader. It seemed like real true peace was attainable and there were writers like Alan Moore that were like, we should be a little more cynical about this. Yeah. It's not what we think it is. There's actually a few more warts under the belly of this American experience. There's a few too many comedians out there working for the government. We're, do, we're pushing too many night owls out. And there are too many Rorschachs walking around just waiting for a cause to become total fascist nightmares. Alan Moore was right. We are in a cynical age. We are in a cynical time in our history right now. We have leadership that is openly corrupt and openly out there lying, enriching themselves, and just doing terrible, horrible things to other human beings. I don't think, and this is just my opinion, there can ever be a real peace until humanity actually grapples with its comedians and its Rorschachs and its Ozymandiases. In other words, until we collectively put these things in harmony, a piece based on a lie 
is like a house of fucking cards just ready to implode, which is why I think with the HBO show for The Watchmen about to come out, the idea that Rorschach's journal, that the truth is out there, the truth will come out and it always comes out, meaning that a piece based on a lie will eventually turn right back into war. And I think until we can conquer all of these demons, tricking the world into peace will never truly sustain and be workable. Well said. Well put. Um, God, there is so much to talk about with Watchmen. Uh, we're here. We have definitely gone over time at this point, And I think we could spend hours more discussing, uh, you know, all of the things that are at play in this movie and in the source comic, uh, you know, some things that uh, I would love to address maybe in a blog in the future, uh, how this movie and how Alan Moore's comic deals with the, with women's issues, deals with issues of, um, of uh, sexual violence, of violence in general. Um, if this is something that you want to hear more about, please let us know. Maybe we'll do another episode down the line or maybe we'll put out some blog contents just so we can spend a little bit more um, complex time with the characters and the themes in, uh, in Watchmen. Um, thank you so much for listening. This has been really, really interesting. Any final thoughts from you? Until next time, guys, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.